Now, Father, may the proclamation of your word be empowered by your spirit to do the work for which you have given it to your church to do, to awaken dead hearts to life, to nourish and sanctify those that are yours, and to hold fast your people until we behold our Savior Jesus Christ in glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Over the past few weeks, we have been considering um, the gift that God gives us in the church and the gifts God gives us through the church, how the church provides assurance to those who are members of the body of Christ, also how it exposes false grounds of assurance so that those who do rest on false assurance might repent and become a part of the body of Jesus Christ. To accomplish those ends that God has given to the church, he gives it gifts, ordinary, regular means of God's grace, those things which are necessary not just for a church to be a church, but are necessary because that is what God says he will use to accomplish his purposes in the church. Now, for the next few weeks, we want to look at those ordinary means of grace, those gifts God gives us through the church, the regular ways that God promises his spirit will work, faith and assurance in his people, the ways that his spirit will demonstrate who is a part of the body of Christ and who is not. We've already looked at one of those means, discipline, uh, although that's going to come up in relation to those other means. But this week, we want to consider preaching, and then we will look at the sacraments, Lord's Supper and Baptism. So this week, I want us to consider four questions in relation to sermons or to preaching. First, what is preaching? You may have heard a few of our sermons. You still might not know, and, and that's important. What is preaching? Second, who can preach? Third, who is preaching for? And then finally, how does God's Spirit make use of preaching? How does it act as a regular means of grace for those to whom it is given? So what is preaching? Who can preach? Who's it for? And how does God use it? I want to start by going to 1 Corinthians 1. And we're going to overlap with a passage that we already considered a few weeks ago. We've already seen in 1 Corinthians that a church must be founded upon the gospel. That is what draws together and shapes every true church. We also saw that the primary way that this will happen is through preaching. But what is preaching inherently? And is it even necessary? You could ask many people, Many people who might even call themselves Christians today, and they might tell you that preaching is in crisis. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines preaching first as delivering a sermon, fair enough, or two, to urge acceptance or abandonment of an idea or course of action, specifically to exhort in an officious or tiresome manner. Imagine a, a child telling their parent, a son saying to his father, don't preach at me. And you can appreciate the way that most people understand preaching today. It's a kind of brute lecturing that manipulates and forces an idea on an audience, a relic of an authoritarian age. 
And so we have heard many excuses why preaching no longer works. It needs to either be rethought or replaced entirely. Maybe the argument to change preaching is related to learning styles. People just don't learn anymore by plopping them down in a chair for an hour and talking at them. Maybe they want a conversation, a demonstration, an engaging presentation. Preaching needs to ask the culture around it what it needs so that it can communicate to culture in a relatable way. That might mean drama, video, props, or maybe just a better looking preacher. I expect some of you have witnessed, I certainly have witnessed such outlandish and uncomfortable reinventions of preaching that it would make you squirm in your seat. And in my immaturity, I remember watching a man prancing around a stage in a truly perverse costume, putting on a vile performance and asking, am I the problem? Is it my fault that I am repulsed by this? Or is the only problem with this that it is repulsive? If he could just tone it down, then I would have to accept that this is the direction preaching should go in. Now, the idea that preaching is in crisis is not new. The enemy has sought to discredit preaching for as long as there has been preaching. Each generation might have a different idea of how we need to reinvent preaching. One wants to go left, another wants to go right. But as culture constantly changes, we must know what does the Lord require preaching to be? What has he always required preaching to be so that we can hold to his definition and trust that it will work the same miraculous ends in every new and different generation? So let's look at how Paul responded to challenges to his preaching in Corinth. Go to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now jump ahead to chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. 
The Jews and Greeks both had their own idea of how the gospel might be better presented to appeal to them. The Jews wanted miracles, signs, visible demonstrations to give them grounds for their faith. I can trust in that. I can get excited about that. The Greeks wanted discourse. They wanted Paul to engage the ideas of the day, to make sure that he confined his messages to things that the world wouldn't call foolish or backward. We hear both those arguments today. Everyone would prefer preaching that affirms whatever their different desires and tastes might be. This is why the line today is so blurred between, between preaching and motivational speaking. Preaching looks like political campaigning or flattery. But Paul will not let unregenerate men tell him what preaching must be. He will not let them tell him what the church will be, and he will certainly not let them tell him what the gospel will be. He says repeatedly what he will do, what he must do. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. Verse 18, the word of the cross. Chapter 2, 1, he proclaims the testimony of God, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Preaching is, quite simply, the public proclamation of the gospel. Many of you know that the word gospel comes from the Greek for good news, evangelion. This word was used when everyone in a city was gathered in the square to hear a herald who had come from the battlefield. The herald had come to proclaim good news, victory. The king has triumphed, and his people will share in the honor of his victory. Inherent in the definition of the gospel is that this is something best proclaimed. The good news can be read, discussed, reflected on, but its primary mode, the mode for which it was designed, is proclamation. Preaching is the heralding. It is the proclamation of the gospel. But this is not the whole of what God says about preaching. When Paul was leaving the city of Ephesus, he called the Ephesian elders to him, and he presented a summary of his ministry. And he says in Acts 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see here, the heart of Paul's preaching was to proclaim repentance and faith, repentance to God, faith in Jesus. But surrounding that core gospel, he says he didn't refrain from teaching anything that was profitable. He continues, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Of course, the gospel might be said so simply as Jesus died for sinners. That is good gospel truth. But there is a reason that God has given us the whole Bible to preach from. Preaching is delivered week after week so we can mine all the richness of the gospel, so we can see its depth and its breadth. It is as big as Christ's prior reign, his coming to earth to be born of a virgin, his perfect life, his death on a cross, his resurrection, his ascension, his intercession, his return, his reign and glory. It is as big as Jesus fulfilling the law, dying as a substitutionary atonement, taking our punishment, reconciling us to God, winning victory over the curse, over sin and death, building a kingdom. 
The gospel is as big as justification by faith, sanctification in the spirit, eternal hope and glorification. And then out of that gospel flow necessary truths that affect every aspect of our lives, that touch everything we do as people who have died to self and live for God. We need all of scripture to illuminate all that richness. So we proclaim this gospel through the whole counsel of God. That was Jesus' commission to his apostles at his, after his resurrection. Luke 24, verses 44 to 48, Jesus commissions his apostles. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So Jesus first tells his disciples that all the Old Testament, law, prophets, psalms, points to him. He opens their minds to understand the truth of all these scriptures, that each of them was always and actually given to proclaim the gospel of salvation. That is the truth in the Old Testament, that Jesus must die and rise again. And then Jesus says, through this gospel proclamation in the Old Testament, through those scriptures, the apostles should preach, proclaim the gospel, repentance and forgiveness to the world. He closes by reminding them they're witnesses of those things. That points to the fact that these apostles will themselves complete the scriptures in the New Testament by testifying to Jesus' death and resurrection and proclaiming the gospel there. So based on this view that the gospel must be proclaimed through all the scriptures, that we must bring to bear the whole counsel of God, we can now expand our definition of preaching. Preaching is the proclamation of the gospel, through expounding the whole counsel of God from all the scriptures. Preaching the gospel from the many diverse books of the Bible is not going to look like flattening or conforming the content of those books. We don't preach the gospel from each book by neglecting the book. We actually need each passage preached faithfully as it was given so we can truly understand the richness of every theme and truth which adorns the gospel. The law, the prophets, the poets, all must do the work for which they were given for us to truly proclaim God's whole counsel and show the fullness of the gospel. What is true is that a sermon or any passage that is a sermon on any passage which is devoid of the gospel will not just miss the heart of preaching but will miss the richest meaning of that passage itself. When we do follow God's definition of preaching, when we preach the gospel from all the scriptures, we can be confident that this is a work that is primarily performed by the Holy Spirit. Everything that true preaching accomplishes is accomplished by God alone. Paul told the Corinthians that the preaching of Christ crucified was a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
He says, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but your faith would rest in the power of God. Through preaching, your faith does not rest in the wisdom a man is sharing, but in the power God is working through that preaching. It is the demonstration of the spirit and power of God. Preaching is a spirit-empowered work. Not through signs and wonders. Paul's already said he hasn't come to offer those things, no matter how much the Jews might want them. No, power here is paired with the word and wisdom, with the actual words being preached. The wisdom of God, the proclaimed gospel, is empowered by God to do his work. It raises dead hearts to life. It builds his church. Souls are saved. And saved souls are actually nourished by God's Spirit as though they were eating a balanced, healthy diet by which they can grow up into spiritual maturity. Since the very beginning, our God has miraculously created by the power of His Word. That's how He created the world. God said, let there be light. And there was light. By speaking with power. It was the word of God that formed his people, the covenant with Abraham, the law to Moses. God's people were formed by proclamation from his mouth, and then they were continually shaped and sustained by that proclamation. We see that in Nehemiah 8, when the people returned from exile after the temple is being built. The Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. When those people came back from exile, they were reformed. They returned to the solid word of God by that word being proclaimed. And here we see the twofold word that takes place in preaching. You first have the infallible word of God, the text itself, and then there are leaders appointed by God qualified leaders with wisdom and understanding who can expound that word, who can give the sense clearly to the specific audience that's hearing it. This expounding and giving the sense of Scripture was common for God's people even before Jesus came. Jesus himself, when he came, participated in the reading and expounding of the Scriptures in the synagogue. Of course, teaching that all those Scriptures were about him. God has always gathered and formed his people by the word. And it has been his pattern, once his inerrant and unchanging word is given, to then have it proclaimed again and again and again to each generation by those whom he equips for the task that he empowers. To replace preaching or to change it is not only to tamper with God's plan for the proclamation of his gospel, but it is to go from God's means and his spirit's power to our own means and our own power. And if the task at hand is to awaken dead hearts to life and see those renewed hearts sanctified so that they might persevere to God's eternal kingdom, all of our best effort is going to fail. If a preacher does not use the word, if he ignores or changes the gospel, if he deliberately hides an aspect of God's whole counsel like justice or punishment, if he deliberately twists the meaning of scripture on any topic, 
like marriage or holiness, if he does those things, he is left behind the work that God does to build his church and offered people something that might thoroughly entertain them, but which will leave them dead in their sin and enemies of God. If we brought in Miles Davis and had him preaching to music lovers with trumpet interludes, if we brought in Sidney Crosby and had him preaching to sports lovers, if we brought in Stephen Hawking for the intellectuals, none of those men could save a single soul. They would leave their hearers very, very pleased on the road to hell. If we had the world's greatest leaders and orators, if we brought in Winston Churchill and Nelson Mandela using their most convincing and passionate speeches, it would not save a single soul. They might fill a room, even for a long time, but wicked men and wicked causes have filled rooms. We want to see something much more miraculous than a full building like Ezekiel being told to preach dry bones to life, we want to see people born again and renewed by the gospel. Friends, you might be afraid for your children, your teens, your unbelieving friends, even for yourself, that the boring week in and week out preaching of the gospel is not enough or even that the preacher is not enough. You might even compare this preaching to the great preachers of history, men of both extraordinary faithfulness and exceptional ability. Even these great faithful preachers might make you look at your own meager pulpit and say, how can this be enough for us? But the humblest preacher with the most meager ability, who faithfully proclaims the gospel from the word of God, is doing something that God's spirit is working power through. If the spirit did not work even through the great preachers, they would have had nothing to show for their years of ministry. Nothing at all. Paul says in 2 Corinthians of himself, and his message that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul sees himself and his own presentation as a clay jar, a cheap vessel that doesn't draw attention to itself so that it would be clear that if his preaching accomplishes anything, it is all accomplished by the Holy Spirit working through the treasure of the gospel Paul is proclaiming. I am not saying that we as preachers are not always eager to improve as communicators, to grow in our knowledge so that we can better preach to you faithfully. But no matter what our skill or knowledge, our confidence can only be in the power of the Spirit. From the greatest to the least preacher, we are jars of clay. And the power of the Spirit working through the treasure of the gospel is the only thing that does any work in our preaching. So preaching is the ordinary means of grace that God has promised to empower, to regenerate and shape and sanctify his church. We might finish our definition. Preaching is the spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel through expounding the whole counsel of God from all the scriptures. So now that we see what preaching is, 
we can answer our other questions. Next, who can preach? Of course, in one sense, the gospel is to be offered to everyone and offered by everyone who knows it. We all do preaching. Parents proclaim the gospel in their homes. We proclaim it in our workplaces to our neighbors. We proclaim it as we sing the gospel to each other. This is a part of what it means to be a Christian, that you are a proclaimer of the gospel because the gospel is worthy of being proclaimed by every single one of us. None of us should be silent as Christ is our savior, as the Lord is worthy to be proclaimed, we all preach, we all live to extol the glory of God. But we also see that there is a special place for those appointed to preach the gospel for God's particular purposes for his people. That was true when it was the priests who sat down the rest of the people and gave the sense of the word of God in Nehemiah. And it is true now. Ephesians 4, 11 to 14. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we might no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. God desires that among the members of his church, there would be certain men set apart for specific offices, which will build up the church, equip the saints, and protect them from deceitful schemes. First, the apostles, the men who established the church, and the prophets who gave the word of God. Then the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, or the pastors. And what do these offices all have in common? They are all preaching offices, capital P, preachers. Because preaching is essential to the foundation and formation of the church, God sets apart men within the church for that task. When Paul outlines to Timothy what uh, the qualifications of an elder are in the church, he includes that they must be able to teach. There are many things in that list of qualifications which any Christian man should strive for, to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. But an elder is someone who is not just a fine Christian man, but is a man who is able to clearly and edifyingly teach God's word. And then even within the elders, there are those set apart for the business of preaching. Paul tells Timothy, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So within the body of men qualified to rule the church are those who are distinctly set apart for the special business of proclaiming, that is preaching. Men who are trained to teach and who are mature enough to recognize that it is the power of God and not their own ability that will make preaching the means by which God forms his church. So who then is preaching for? We can see who preaching is meant for as we consider the work that preaching actually accomplishes. So we will hit both of those questions at once. The primary audience of preaching is the people of God who are formed and shaped by it. If the gospel is what founds and forms a church, then the act of preaching is the primary way that this is accomplished for the church. Gospel proclamation is the primary means by which the Spirit founds and forms both the universal church and individual local churches. The members of the people of God are thus the primary receivers of preaching. We gather as a visible body 
to receive the spiritual nourishment that shapes us into a people. The Spirit nourishes us through the proclamation of the gospel, and the Spirit does this in a number of ways. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16-4.2, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. We already saw in Ephesians that God gave the church preachers so it would be built up to maturity as a whole body. This naturally happens to us individually as part of the body as well. The body is built up together as its members individually are being built up. Paul says Timothy is preaching the word to make his hearers complete, fully formed, fully matured, fully equipped for every ministry. And then Paul delivers to Timothy one of the sternest warnings in Scripture that he has to preach, that he could never, must never neglect the preaching of the word in the sight of God who judges. You must keep preaching because preaching is the primary means that God desires his word would form his people. It's the primary means that God will use to do that. And Timothy must preach from all of scripture. That warning is that he preached from all of God's words so that it can build us up in all the different ways that God's entire word was given to build us up so that it can correct, train, reprove, rebuke, exhort. All of those are gospel-rooted works that the proclaimed gospel builds us up in. This is one of the reasons that each church ought to have its own leaders who are set apart for preaching. Because just like the priests in Nehemiah, it should be a preacher who knows the people, who is charged specifically with shepherding that particular flock, who knows which of these particular gospel works they might need right now, from which part of God's word. Is this congregation a mature one or an immature one? What cultural pressures do they face? What internal struggles are going on in the church? This is why you need your pastors and elders preaching to you rather than watching a video of a preacher who does not know you and will not stand before God accountable for your soul. Everything we do as men charged to preach to you, choosing which books to preach, which applications to address, whether we need to correct, exhort, comfort, warn, all of that is done with you specifically in mind. And we trust that the Spirit is empowering the preparation and planning of faithful preaching just as he empowers the delivery. The Spirit specifically works so that my sermons will be specifically for you. And so you come as members of Christ's body in this congregation, Park City Gospel Church, expecting his spirit to accomplish what you personally need as a member of this church body. Correction, exhorting, comfort, equipping, training, warning, giving you reasons to rejoice. 
God gave preaching to encourage and build you up, to set your feet firmly on the rock of Christ and the gospel, to prepare you personally for how you need to serve the other members of the body. Every gift that we have through the scriptures comes to us primarily through the proclamation of the gospel in the word of God. But in the midst of these diverse gifts remains the primary gift, the primary work of the gospel, salvation offered every time the gospel is proclaimed to those who would repent and believe in Jesus' death and resurrection. So preaching is not just for those who are a part of the body, but for those we eagerly desire to become a part of the body. God desires that those who do not believe hear the preaching of the gospel so that his spirit might use it to work salvation in them. Paul says in Romans 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That doesn't mean that the central gospel message of repentance and faith isn't for you once you're saved, that we've got the gospel portion of the scripture and the rest of you can fall asleep for five minutes while we offer this to the people who don't yet believe in Christ and the gospel. The gospel remains the pure spiritual milk that is always necessary nourishment for every member of Christ's body. We must all regularly, repeatedly hear that we were not always a part of Christ's body, but we have been reconciled to God. And we rejoice that this same gospel, which nourishes us, is at the same time going out to those who are still his enemies, those who need to be told that they are slaves to sin and death. But God, in his mercy, sent his only son to die. Jesus bore the full wrath that you and I in our wretched state of sinful darkness as enemies of God deserved so that if we cry out to him, recognizing we've got nothing of ourselves to bring, if we rely on his grace alone, we are forgiven. We are given Christ's record just as he took ours to the cross and we are adopted as children of God. We leave behind the kingdom of darkness and we belong to the kingdom of light and we are remade as spiritual stones as a household for God himself to dwell among us God gives us preaching so that this gospel can continually go out and save those who do not believe while it nourishes those who do if you are a guest with us this morning if you do not believe this gospel whether you've just heard it for the first time or whether you've heard it thousands of times, then this message is being preached for you now. God wants this preached to you so that by his spirit, you could repent and believe, go from being lost in sin and on the road to death and hell to being a member of the eternal family of God. So the same proclamation of the gospel is a gift of spiritual nourishment to the people of God and a means of regeneration for those who are not yet his. This same preaching calls those who are not God's people to become his people and offers the many rich gifts of the gospel to those who are his. It is preached for us. 
for our little children, for our teenagers, for the long time unregenerate church attendee, for the guest who just came in off the street. There is one more related work which preaching does. Just as it creates and shapes God's people, it clarifies who God's people are. It even clarifies that for us now. It allows us to see more clearly who belongs to God and who does not. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Paul pictures the gospel as a fragrance that arises from those who proclaim it and goes out into the world. To some people, this fragrance is a sweet aroma. They are drawn to it. They need to chase down its source so they can be filled by it and enjoy its life-giving delight. They recognize that it is from God and it is their salvation. But that exact same aroma to others is a horrible stench that they desperately want to run away from. And some of those people who will hate and reject that aroma believed that they were a part of God's people. This is how the gospel clarifies who belongs to God and who, who really is a part of the body of Christ. One of the very simple tests, one of the very first tests of a new believer, one of the clearest signs of fruit that we can see right at the beginning of even the newest and most immature Christian is how they respond to the preaching of the gospel. Do they hear it and say, that is a sweet aroma to me. I want to be filled by it every single day. I love to hear who Jesus is. His holiness, his love, his grace. I even love to hear that I'm a sinner and how lost I was in death and being an enemy of God because it reminds me what an amazing work he did in me. It reminds me how big the gospel is. And as I mourn over my sin, even now I can continue to rejoice in Christ. I can celebrate that God sent his son to die and then powerfully raised him from the dead to grant even me a place in his people for all eternity. Christians love to hear how they were reconciled to God by the death of his son. They love that the gospel is not just freedom from hell, that it's not just forgiveness of sins, but that it is the greatest treasure of an eternity united with Christ. They are delighted that the gospel's greatest promise is God himself. But others will hear the same gospel. They will hear it say that they have failed in every attempt to prove their worth, that they have nothing to show. It will tell them that it is God alone who deserves glory. It will tell them that the best God has to offer is not rewards for their own merit, but the gift of himself. Not the pleasures of this world, but an eternity celebrating his grace. It will break down their idols, the worldly joys that they want from God, and it will offer them a life as God's child instead, and they will find that to be a stench to them. Folly, the aroma of death, 
And that scent will be filled all the more with death as it reveals through their visible rejection their eternal condemnation away from God in hell. This is the supernatural way that the Spirit uses preaching to visibly show us who God's people are and who is not a part of God's people. When we gather to sit under the preaching together, we are meant to see how men and women respond to the gospel in real time, during the sermon, after the sermon, through the week. I have heard long-time church members rail against the regular preaching of the gospel. They came for the events, for the social status, the community, the pep talk. They even came for some of the genuinely good things that we enjoy, but could you please stop telling me that Jesus died for my sins all the time? Sometimes this person might claim that it's not the gospel they're rejecting. They're rejecting something else about the gospel preaching. It was just too long. It was too boring. It was not the way they learned. It didn't engage culture well enough. But Paul said of those Jews and those Greeks who wanted different things, signs, wisdom, the deepest reason they wanted Paul to change was that they found the word of the cross to be folly. It rejected the wisdom of the world, the wisdom which still captivated their hearts. If people love a gift, if they really see it as a treasure, they don't complain too much about whether it was given in a gold purse or a paper envelope. But these Jews and Greeks who said that they wanted different presentation, they would have taken anything other than the gospel. Miracles, discourse, elephant rides, just not the gospel. It is actually a work of grace that we are meant to see that these people are rejecting the gospel. Maybe then it will even be clear to them it's not the presentation they hate, it's what's being presented. So now preaching has shown us not just who is saved, but who we have no reason to assume is saved. We no longer need that person to tell us what the church should be, what's important in the church. We no longer need that person to tell us what preaching has to become, what the church has to become. Now we know that we are meant to treat them as someone who can't have assurance so that we can encourage them that they need to repent and believe. This is how we can graciously, lovingly treat those who have rejected the preaching of this church family if it is the proclamation of the gospel. Of course, we see also that there are whole churches that have changed or rejected preaching. They proclaim affirmation of human ability or helpful tidbits of moralism to make you a better person this week, to make you feel good if you like feeling good, or bad if you like feeling bad. The Spirit has also clarified for us that those churches are not resting on the foundation of the gospel. They are not God's churches. We can see which congregations to lovingly support as sister congregations, those who are fellow parts of the universal church of Christ, and also recognize which churches to warn people against as false. 
It is a gift to us, to the church, to visibly see when the gospel is being preached that some are drinking deeply of its fragrance while others are plugging their noses and running away. And so, while we want many good things for our church, many good things that people coming off the street can see, responsible volunteers, good ministries for our kids and our youth, welcoming fellowship, let us desire that none of them be the thing which draws, forms, or shapes this people. Let us always let the proclamation of the gospel do that. Even if it causes some people to leave for our visible numbers to shrink, because this doesn't mean that the people of God are shrinking. It is actually God clarifying who clearly does belong to him and who has no reason to be assured that they belong to him. Who is saved and who do we want to be saved? And then for those of us who remain, we are meant to take a confidence from our love of this proclaimed gospel. That even those among us who are immature, who are weak in their biblical knowledge, maybe still bearing the scars of their former sin, we who hear the gospel and delight in it can be assured that we are Christ's sheep. Because Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow Jesus' sheep are those who hear his voice proclaimed in his words, and they love it, and they love him who speaks it, and they run to him. This is a reason why we must hear the voice as a gathered people. We must see its work of causing some to reject and others to come. We must see who has rejected and who has received. We must know who is a part of the body of Christ by how they receive the proclamation of the gospel. And then we become gifts to those who are revealed to be fellow members of the body with us. We must apply for each other the rebuking, exhorting, comforting, and warning that the gospel in its proclamation is laid before us. We encourage the assurance of those who have received the gospel gladly. We comfort them. And we warn those who say that they belong to God, but they hated when the gospel was proclaimed. We need to be a gathered body so that this work of clarifying for the sake of our assurance can be done for us. And so that we then can participate in the building up of this body together. We also listen together because that proclaimed gospel is itself actually the thing which is drawing us and knitting us to each other, just as it draws and knits us to our shepherd. We are richly assured of our faith because just as we are through this gospel proclamation being bound to Christ, we are being bound in increasing unity to each other as his people more and more assured that we are his because we are a part of this body. So then, friend, do not desire anything other than the spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel from the word of God. Never exchange this gift of his spirit, this means of grace, for anything that men and women can come up with. All human means of saving and keeping souls will fail. If they form anything, it will not be the church of Jesus Christ. But let us trust the voice of Christ as it is faithfully proclaimed from all the scriptures. This is what 
draws Jesus' sheep to him. This is how he draws them. This is how he holds and guards them. If you have endured this gospel, put up with it, or hated to hear it, then repent. See the goodness of this good news. How much better a gospel is that glorifies Christ than one that would glorify you. Run to it. Run to him. Believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. And then delight to be nourished by this gospel. And if you do love it, if you delight to hear it, if you love to join with your church family so that it can mold and shape you as a people together, then praise God for how he is giving you sweet assurance that you are his. Even in your weakness and your struggling, do you love this gospel? Is it your gospel? Is he your shepherd? Praise God that he is. That you belong to him. And that he is keeping you as his own until you see his face dwell with him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you have given good news to be proclaimed and that your Holy Spirit works through it to turn enemies into children, to awaken dead hearts to life, and to mold those renewed hearts into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Father, these are miracles we cannot work on our own. Forgive us when we have doubted them or desired something else. Draw us to trust in and rest alone in the proclamation of the true gospel as you have given it to be proclaimed. I pray that it would work repentance and salvation in those who do not believe it yet and that it would be sweet nourishment to those who are yours that you might hold and keep them until we see you and delight in your presence for all eternity. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ for his glory. Amen.